We do thank you for the ministry of music this morning. Lord, my heart's been blessed, and Lord, I thank you that, uh, Father, I've been reminded of what I already know, uh, that you are Lord, and you are Lord over all. And I thank you for how that has been encouraged, and I thank you for how that has been reinforced and affirmed this morning. And now we turn to your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to handle it properly. I pray you would help us to hear and understand, and Lord... Uh, cover up my faults. I pray your word would come forward, that I would just kind of disappear. And I thank you, Father, uh, for the fact that we can look to you and be changed more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So we are here in the book of Psalms, Psalm 27, told you uh, a while ago that if we are not in the midst of a series or not dealing with a holiday, we would come to the book of Psalms. Uh, and I've, if, since the last time, it's been a few months since the last time we've been in the book, and so let me remind you that Psalms does have a structure to it. Most of us kind of open the book and read maybe a psalm a day, or maybe you read uh, one psalm every day for a year, but there is a structure, a story here in the book of Psalms. It opens in Psalm number one by comparing the blessed man and the wicked man. And we're told that the blessed man, the one who is trusting the Lord with his life, is like someone or like a tree that is planted next to an eternal source of water. And the book ends with several songs of rejoicing, the calling the reader to worship and to praise the Lord for all that he has done and for no matter where they are. In between those two things, being introduced to the blessed man and finding at the end of the book a rejoicing in God, we watch the blessed man fail. We see how he struggles with both success and and difficulty. We see how he calls out eventually in some of these psalms, the, the messianic psalms, he'll from time to time call out the need for a deliverer. And so the book ends by rejoicing in the fact that God has provided that deliverer. And so very much the psalms is about Jesus. Psalm 27 is in the midst of a number of psalms that are really about the battle of life and living. The psalm in this section handle both success and trial. And it's one of those areas where we're reminded that the Christian life or being a Christian does not mean we are going to be free from trial. Being a child of God does not mean, hopefully we've learned that in our four years in Joel, but, but certainly the Psalms reinforce that if you're a child of God, it doesn't mean you're going to be free from trouble. In fact, Jesus told his disciples that there will always be wars and rumors of wars. Now, the title of my message this morning, I apologize for not being able to get it to you, is really the question, how are you doing? Psalm 27 really is about that question. How are you doing with the battle that is life and living? Or maybe I'd ask this question. How did you handle your most recent difficulty? If you think back, when's the last thing I had to deal with that was difficult? Maybe it was a child this morning. Maybe a spouse that you had to... I uh, had a run in with, you, you know, that happens in marriage, perhaps a, a, a boss that you had to have a confrontation with. How did you handle the last difficulty? How are you doing? Well, I think we find in this psalm wisdom and how to deal with some difficulties, no matter whether or not we're dealing with them for the first time 
or for the 20th time. Three points for you this morning. When it comes to dealing with our difficulties, number one, always start with a right view of God. Verses 1 through 6, that's the first section of this psalm, always start with the right view of God. In this section, obviously the Lord is the subject of everything he is talking about. Notice everything the psalm considers. The Lord is my light, my salvation. The Lord is the strength of my life. Wherever the Lord is, the writer says, that's where I want to be because the Lord is beautiful. I remember even in the hectic of driving home last night in the terrible weather when we got past Lexington and it was almost like everything cleared right up. And, and I kind of looked out my driver's side window and I saw that it was a clear and perfect night. And those was one of those things, well, I had to keep my eye on the road, but you really just want to look at. And that's what he's saying. You know what? I'm going to go be where the Lord is because the Lord is something beautiful to look at. And he says, I want to be where the Lord is because that's where I can inquire. That's where I can ask questions. That's where I can find wisdom. He says, when I'm with the Lord, I'm reminded that he fights for me. I'm reminded that he will set me on a high ground. The Lord is the reason I can have joy in the midst of trouble. The Lord is the reason I can sing in the hard times. All because of who he is. And I want you to notice in the text, in those first six verses, when he considers the Lord, what goes away? Fear and being afraid. And the reason for that, if you notice here, uh, that the, the, the reason for that is in these opening verses in the number of personal possessive pronouns. He is my light. He is my salvation. He is my strength. And it means that if, if he is your light or if he is my light, the author is saying, then the powers of darkness that are after me, I do not have to fear because he is my light. If he's my salvation, then the sins and the failures and the attacks upon me and upon my life, I don't have to fear. If he is the one who gives me strength, then nothing I face will grind the life out of me. If he's my strength, then I don't need to worry about whether or not my arms of flesh can hold up, whether or not I can stay positive, or whether or not I have enough resources. The courage I need to face my problems is entirely tied up in who God is. I remember in fourth grade, my teacher gave us this worksheet. I don't know if teachers still do this today. She gave us a worksheet had 24 different instructions on it. The very first instruction on the worksheet was read all the directions. Following that were a number of directions like go write your name on the board or put a book on your desk or draw a dog on the back of the page. And then you get to the 23rd direction. Ignore all previous directions. And you'd get to the 24th question or the 24th direction and it would say, put your name on the paper. I was one of those students that got caught and was running around the room erasing my name off the board and putting books away and trying to erase the dog that I drew. Because I had failed to follow the very first direction, to read all the directions. And we cannot make the same mistake here. We never, when dealing with our difficulties, we never start with the problem. We always start with the light of God. And this is why the world never solves its problems. 
Because it never starts there. And it doesn't really matter what the problem is. It could be the problem of abuse towards women. It could be income inequality. It could be racism. The world never solves its problems because it never starts with God. And the same is true for you and the same is true for me. Last uh, Sunday evening, the eldest family was here. Uh, sharing about their ministry in the South Sudan. And he was talking about having to uh, deal with people who identified as Christians. And he would ask them what made them Christians. And they would start talking about sweeping out the church or bringing food to the elderly. You see, they thought that the, that the strength of the power in Christianity is all found in what they were able to do and what they did. Of course, the gospel tells us this isn't true at all. Being accountable to God and full of corruption leaves us in a very difficult place, and which is why God sends this deliverer, Jesus Christ, and why Christ takes care of all that needs to be taken care of so that we can be his children. And all God asks of us is to believe that he can take care of it all. That the answer is going to be found outside of ourselves. That's what the psalmist is saying. Look, the reason I'm not afraid, the reason that fear is going away, is not because I'm starting with me, and not because I'm starting with my problem, but because I'm starting with God. Let me encourage you, if you've never done this, go and sit and have coffee or tea with an older saint. And ask him this question. Have you ever had a moment or a struggle that you thought was never going to end? And what carried you through? And if they walk through the, with the Lord through their struggles and their difficulties in this life, their answer is always going to be the Lord. The Bible says to us, his strength is made perfect in our times of weakness the hymnist says, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And this is where we must look. This is always where we must start. So number one, if we're going to deal with our difficulties, whether it's the first time or the 20th time, how are you doing starting with God? Number two, we address our earthly problems from that view. We address our earthly problems from that view. Verses 7 to 12, the author is moving now from meditation to prayer. The command, he says, the Lord has said to me, I need to seek your face. It's a command that is given to us in our times of trial and anxiety. Seek my face. The, the words or the grammar there is actually all in the plural, meaning this is a broad command that God has given to all of his children. When it comes to times of difficulty and trouble, the place to go first is to seek his face. But the writer responds by putting it in the singular, making it personal. The, thy face, Lord, will I seek. Well, of course, we're, we're told to do this a number of times. Certainly some verses you've memorized. Cast your cares upon God, for he cares for you. Don't be anxious because he knows all the hairs upon your head. Or as the book of Hebrews says, he took on flesh. And so now we pray to someone who is listening to our prayers, knowing the trials that we face. And then we get a great reminder in verses 9 and 10 that our relationship with God is not like human relationships. 
I've been in ministry long enough to tell you that even the bond between parent and child can be broken. But God will never forsake us. We thank God. We certainly love the fact that we have family and friends and our trials and our difficulties. But their strength will not hold up. We've talked about this before. That the weakness of people in times of trial is seen. And that in all of their sincerity, they, they will move on from their, perhaps their initial concern after your medical diagnosis or, or if they stop calling months after a death of the family. It is because they are weak. And we find in verse 11 that the psalmist says, now I want to be taught. Remember the error of Job and his friends? The error that Job and his friends had was that they thought they had the wisdom to diagnose. They thought they had the wisdom to deal with the struggle they were facing. But we must be taught. And the author admits that he is like a child. He's asking God, teach me plainly. He says, I need a a flat path to walk on because hills and mountains are too much. And then we note in verse 12, he does not fail to ask for deliverance. We see him ask for help. We see him ask to be taught, but he does ask for deliverance. Daniel prayed and was delivered when God shut the mouth of the lions. And we know that Jesus prayed for deliverance, but we also know that he submitted himself into not being delivered. In the book of Acts, the church prayed for Peter's freedom from prison and God delivered him. Paul asked for deliverance from the thorn in his flesh, but submitted himself to not being delivered. And so we say that it is right to, to pray for healing from things like cancer, but it is also right to pray that God would teach you how to live righteously with it. We are called only to be content, never to be complacent. And we are certainly not called to fall into any sort of fatalism. Let me ask you a question. Why do we resist? Why do we resist praying? Why do we not turn to the wisdom of Scripture in our times of trouble? I've answered that question many times. It's because it doesn't come naturally to us. Maybe you're a naturally anxious person. So when you face a problem, it's far more natural for you to go through every possible doomsday scenario you can. Some of you are very self-motivated people. It's far more natural for you to be self-sufficient. And so when you have a problem, you worry about the problem, you try to figure the problem out. And as you can't do that, you continue to worry about it, continue to do whatever it is you need to do to try to figure it out. And you find yourself in this endless cycle of constantly trying to figure things out. Or perhaps some of you, it's because you've been hurt before. And it's, it's really the fact that God's further down in the list. You have a circle of people you trust, you go to, and you need help. It's a, it, it, there are experts. Um, I mean, even I have books in my office. There are guys that I love to turn to in times when I'm not sure what, 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 I, uh, what, what the text is really trying to explain. But you're giving God the cold shoulder because you're just not quite sure. If you can have hope or you can have trust in what you consider to be a real problem. And certainly we have to mention secret sins. One of the reasons we don't turn to God is because we know that if we talk to him, 
We're going to remind ourselves of things that we have done and that we should not have done. But the first part of this text, the first six verses, are removing anything that should cause us to resist, to pray, and to rest in learning from the wisdom of God. Our most basic need in life is to cry out for help. We should not be, with the right view of God, we should not be slow to ask for it. So we find the psalmist gives us a pattern here, tells us, here's, what, what to do when we face our earthly problems. We get our, we get our view of God, but then we begin to pray. We, we ask the Lord to help us, to forgive us, to teach us. We'll put it this way. Perhaps you've had trouble with your spouse. And so you go and you say to the Lord, help me. Set me on firm ground so that I can be faithful. Lord, forgive me for being weak and falling short of being the spouse I should be. Lord, teach me how to love my, my spouse and, and to rest in your wisdom for my marriage. Of course, you can take this and you can apply it to parenting or persevering during unemployment or struggling through any other type of difficulty. And we do it knowing that God never gets tired. He never, we, we, we do this over and over and over again, knowing that he never gets tired of helping us. And so we, we address our earthly problems from, the, from a right view of God. So, so now the question, how are you doing? How are you doing with that? Number three, lastly this morning, verses 13 and 14, give praise with confidence. Two words is the key phrase here, I believe. The foundation of all of worship is that believing And while we're believing, we are called to wait on the Lord, to keep waiting, to wait for the goodness of God in the land of the living. And I want you to understand, the foundational idea here is not that God is is always going to work, openly work deliverance or show us favor in a visible manner. But here's the guarantee we do have. We will always find mercy. Grace will always come when it is needed. Now, the language here is very interesting. The, the, the command there, wait on the Lord, is not a general to all command. It, it is in the singular, which what that means here in the, in the grammar is that the author is actually saying this to himself. Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. We've mentioned this before. We all talk to ourselves, whether you want to admit it or not. Even sitting here right now, some of you are thinking, is there, there's a roast in the oven. You've got to see the doctor on Monday. You're getting back to the sermon for a few minutes, and you remind yourself that perhaps somebody didn't turn the light off downstairs. We're just, we're constantly talking to ourselves. And, we, and so what the author's doing is he's talking to himself, because the choice is here, is that we either listen to what is coming out of ourselves, or we talk to ourselves. We saw with Job that there can be a great deal of trouble when it comes to waiting. When we think of the children of Israel, they'd never wanted to wait for the Lord, and so they would attack a city or make a treaty or they would crown somebody king. And they did it because they didn't want to wait. The Bible says that Moses killed the Egyptian because he believed that God would deliver Israel by his hand, but didn't want to wait. Abraham ended up having a child with a woman that was not his wife because he did not want to wait. So the author's talking to himself. 
telling himself to wait. But he's not telling us to sit on our hands. That's where the two verses come together. We are to believe. We are to worship. Let me explain this way. Perhaps you're struggling with a bit of depression. What he would say to you is this, is that that don't wait for good feelings to help your neighbor shovel her walk. While you're waiting for the job that you're praying for, continue to believe. Don't stop worshiping. We are very prone to faintness of heart. Being emotionally and, and physically tired makes things very difficult and challenging. And the answer is to believe. Believe that there is a far kingdom where we have a home and a meal waiting and worship with thanksgiving because it has all been sealed up for you. You see, worship is the energy drink for the Christian who is waiting. I know a man who was in the ministry, worked hard for the Lord, and saw his church close. The man I know went through terrible darkness, even having moments where he considered suicide. He struggled with his face. His faith was, was God even real? He kept on, though. During this very difficult and dark season, he continued to pray, continued to read his Bible, continued to go to church, continued to worship. Now, let me just be very plain, uh, plain and clear here this morning. His struggle with thoughts of suicide did not mean that he failed to persevere. The fact that he had to question or ask hard questions of his faith did not mean he failed to persevere. The fact that he continued to believe in the midst of all of it, why he's considered as somebody who persevered. So let me ask you, the Bible tells us that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Are you able to face the future with that in mind? Nothing. Nothing that shall come upon you will ever separate you from the love of God. Are you able to face the future with that in mind? The Bible tells us that no one can bring a charge against us. So let me ask you this. Are you able to face your past with that in mind? The Bible says that God is for you. Are you able to face the the present with with that in mind? It is a well-worn tactic of all of your spiritual enemies to think that these promises and the God who made these promises cannot be trusted. But the Bible is clear. Our inheritance can't be taken away. Our adoption can't be undone. We've been given eternal life. And we know that it is ours because it was never dependent upon our productivity. Because it was never dependent upon us being and doing everything right, but entirely dependent on God's free grace. The basis of God's love, the promises he has for me, are not dependent on me. But on the work of Jesus Christ, on the help, uh, uh, to help on behalf of sinners like me. This is not supposed to be some sort of pep rally, not sort of foolish optimism, but a confidence in who God is. This is not about optimism because of something inside of us. This is not the world's confidence when he talks about being the master of our fate or the captain of our soul. 
We believe, we worship, we wait. We continue to be godly parents and husbands and friends and citizens while we wait. We wait for his mercy. We wait for his grace in the land of the living. So how are you doing? When it comes to your big problems, when it comes to your long-term problems, are you starting with a biblical view of God? Is that your habit? Are you reminding yourself that he is your light, your salvation, your source of strength? Are you facing your problems on that high ground? How did it go last time? Did you bring it to God in prayer? Did you seek out and obey his wisdom? And while you waited for his wonderful grace, did you believe and worship? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for how psalms like this touch on the very realities of life. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to gain the pattern in our life of of always dealing with our difficulties, whether we have to do it the moment we wake up in the morning, but, but to put our eyes on you. For you are our light, our salvation, our strength. and, And so to what should I be afraid? And I pray, Father, then we would take the issues and problems of our life and we would seek you out in prayer and that we would, we would go to your word for wisdom. And Father, while we wait for answers and while we wait for your mercy and while we wait for your, your grace, you would help us to worship, to be faithful. I thank you, Father, for those lessons, and I pray you would apply them to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. And turn to hymn number 590. 590. Let's sing the first and the third of 590. My life, my love, I give.